There are thousands of missing persons cold cases. Many of them are children, and the reality is majority of them never see any substantial publicity at all. From strictly a storytelling standpoint, I was very spoiled in season one of Faded Out. The Johnny Gosh case has, for more than 36 years now, been a very high-profile case, meaning that it's very easy to research, even with just a few clicks on the computer. Well, the thing to remember is, most cases are not like that. You can Google a missing person's name, find an entry for them in NamUs or the Doe Network, the Charlie Project, but that's where it stops. So as I was researching cases to potentially cover for season two, I had some criteria. First of all, being that I am from Connecticut, I wanted to choose a case that happened in Connecticut. Obviously, the first reason for that is convenience, easy access to local people and places. The other reason is, well, okay, now that you've spent over a year focusing on a case that happened 1,200 miles away, now that you've emotionally invested in that case, now that you've gotten onto a plane and gone there to see the area yourself, why not now look into a similar case that happened a mere half-hour drive from where you lived all your life? The other part of the criteria was that I wanted to cover a case that wasn't as high profile as Johnny's. Give a voice to a case that never had the opportunity to have one. So with those items in mind, I was searching through the Doe Network's website one day, and that was when I found an entry for a girl named Doreen Jane Vincent. Like Johnny, Doreen was also 12 years old when she disappeared, never to be seen again. She disappeared from her father's house on June 15, 1988, on Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford, Connecticut. It's interesting for me personally because if you listen to season one, you probably know by now that I was born in 84. So this is a bit different from the Johnny Gosh case in that I was in existence when Doreen disappeared, just shy of turning four. My mom was pregnant with my brother. Plus, I am born and raised in Bristol, Connecticut. I could have crossed paths with her as a little one, for all we know, and never even realized it. So for this first episode of our new season, I'm going to help you get to know Doreen Vincent, a 12-year-old girl from Connecticut who vanished just over 30 years ago. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. One of the things that Doreen Vincent's case and Johnny Gosh's case have in common is that prior to doing a Google search of each of their names, I had gone my entire life without ever having heard of them. It's a little surprising that more people, especially here in Connecticut, haven't heard of Doreen. It's not so surprising on a national level because granted, her case was not highly publicized. Frankly, it was hardly publicized at all. But when you hear the details of her story, you would think at the very least, some sort of regional word of mouth tradition would have been passed down about her over the years. You would think that she would have reached the urban legend status that we saw in the Johnny Gosh case, but that would never happen. But before we start to dig into this case, let's first get to know Doreen. 
Doreen was born on September 30, 1975, to Mark Vincent and Donna Jones, who at the time were 19 and 16 years old, respectively. They married after Donna became pregnant, because at that time, the mid-1970s, that was still what young people were expected to do in that scenario. Mark and Donna were married officially for five years, but only spent about two, possibly three of those years living together. I, along with my brand new production team, had the pleasure of meeting Donna at her home in Waterbury. To give you some perspective, Waterbury is a little more than 20 miles away from Wallingford and roughly a half an hour drive. We also got to meet Donna's younger daughter, Stephanie, and her two sisters, Doreen's aunts, Carol and Debbie. The very first thing I asked Donna was to take me all the way back. I asked, do you remember when Doreen was born? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yes, it took me a whole three hours and 20 minutes okay. to know her. And by the time I got to the hospital, I was there 45 minutes, yeah. Okay. It was constant labor, but then she was six pounds, 11 and a half ounces, and I think it was 19 inches long. Oh, okay. So what kind of um what kind of little kid was she? What was her personality like? Was she a was she a good kid? Was she a social kid? Yes, yes. She was uh she was very sweet. Uh, you know, she started walking at like early 9 months old. Um uh, she was smart. She talked uh quickly. Uh she was she was a very good girl too. She was like she wasn't holiday or up all the time. She would sleep and she was very good. And I was young. Okay. I was only sixteen when I had her in and it was hard, believe me, it was hard, you know. Yeah. And I made my share of mistakes for sure, but she was a very good girl. As I was speaking with Donna in another room of the house, over in the living room, Donna's two sisters, Carol and Debbie, both of whom are younger than Donna, spoke to one of the members of the production team, Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Jessica is an attorney and has been providing the majority of the background research in Doreen's case. Here's Jessica first asking Debbie about the early years after Doreen was born when Donna and Mark were recently married. Tell me, what did their home life look like after uh, Dan Barry? Like, you said, Um, um, your sister said she'd been in in a bunch of different places as she grew up. What is that? uh, Well, you know, Donna always worked. She had her um, job since she was like 18 years old with the Mm -hmm. state. But being on first shift, she had to have babysitters and, and... for quite a while. Bus driver. You see, I'm trying to remember exact. So there was a time. Me. She, she went to Florida. She had me. Yeah. Okay. And she had you in, let me do the math, 83. Correct. But then there was a time where they bought my grandmother's house. So when was that? I, I, you know, it's 30 years ago, so it's hard to remember right. everything in sequence. Mm-hmm. Right. But they did purchase my grandmother's house, and he was redoing my grandmother's After house um, in Pros- Ansonia. And Ansonia, okay. And so... Um, got back together then, too. So um, Donna's working first shift. Right. And Doreen's with babysitters well, in the mornings. Well, would bring her, send her off to school, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. We all lived together in in um, Danbury for a little while. Me and, and my sister Carol and Donna and mm-hmm. we and Doreen. Yeah, and Doreen lived with mm-hmm. us. I mean, she was your regular average kid. She was a good girl. I yeah, mean, 
She had her interest. She liked her little scrapbooking. She liked, um, what's that singer? Um, George, 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 George Michael. Oh, man. George Michael was the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she was just your average kid. You know, yeah. she, she just, she I mean, music. yeah, her jean jacket, her Reebok sneakers. The other voice that you hear in the background is Donna's younger daughter, Stephanie. Stephanie is about seven years younger than Doreen. She was only five years old at the time of Doreen's disappearance, but it was evident as Stephanie spoke to Jessica that she still had memories of her big sister. When Doreen used to live with her father, Mark, and my mother would pick her up on the weekends because my mother had me and she was a single mother mm -hmm. and she would pick her up on the weekends. So that's all I pretty much can tell you about that and that's around the time she went missing right so, so you are about seven years apart yes right? okay yes so what was it like growing so by the time you were born was Doreen with her father or that came later I don't remember from the time that I can remember Doreen lived with her father and I lived with my mother because my mother remarried my father okay or mar married my father and had me Mm -hmm. So from the time that I, the only time I could remember is from Bunker Hill, right before she went missing. Mm -hmm. And that's about, I mean, I can remember sharing a room with her. I could remember her bunk beds. I can remember eating her chapstick. I could remember <laughs> fighting with her. I could remember her barrettes. Um, normal sister things. Yeah. No, no sign that anything was troubled with her through my eyes mm -hmm. as a four or five year old at the time um and then all of a sudden i could just remember one day her never coming back right and that was it so i'm trying to think because my sister and i are about six years apart right i'm the older one and i remember you know, we're very close now, but I remember she used to bug the hell that out of me. That was me. I remember me and my sister fought one time because I had a friend over, and my friend wanted to play with my older sister, of course, because <clears throat> she, I guess, was cooler than me. And um, I remember going to my mother and saying, Ma, my, my friend wants to play with, with Doreen and not me, and her basically telling me, you know, play together, you know, yeah. get over it and, and, and go play together. And that's it. And... That's pretty much all I can really remember about her. I mean, you know, we typical sister things. I remember arguing and, mm -hmm. you know, being envious because she was the older sister and, you know, she was she was beautiful. You know, green green eyes, mm -hmm. black hair. That's all I can really say. What what do you think you were arguing about? Do you remember? Oh, just typical it's things like that's mine. No, that's mine. Um, I told you not to touch my stuff. And mm -hmm. I did anyway. Mm -hmm. um, why'd you have to eat my chapstick again? Because <laughs> she used to get the silver ones and the tins that when you slide them over, yes. they just yeah. tasted so good. They smelled and, good, right? Yeah, and just typical things, you know. I wanted to be like her, and it's just, it was it was hard. I followed her around. I was the pain in the butt to yeah. little sister. and I know exactly what you're talking about. That's... Because I can picture Alyssa in my head right now, you know. Yeah, I know exactly I, what you mean. You know, that's pretty much what I can remember. I mean, I, I, I remember good things, too. We shared a room, and I'd climb up on the top bunk every night, you know, every, every, now, every now and then and sleep with her mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't know. I just felt more comfortable laying in bed with her. But that's about 
all I can really remember from her because again I was Little. five years old but the day that I found out that I knew that she wasn't coming back um they tried to shelter me again I was five I didn't need to hear I didn't need to see everything I could just remember one day and I knew right then and there that something terrible happened and that she was never coming back mm -hmm. and that's all I can remember so after I spoke to Donna for a while I spoke to her two sisters, Carol and Debbie, about their first memories of Doreen. Bear in mind, they were just children themselves at the time that Doreen was born. Here's Carol. Well, she was a good kid, actually. She wasn't, she was a hard kid to watch. She was a little bit hyper, okay. I think. Very, a little bit hyper. She's kind of stayed alone. She, uh, she wasn't really, she didn't mingle with kids much. Know? Even Donna said that she had a few close friends, didn't have a ton of friends, no, though. very few, really. Mm -hmm. One, a couple selective ones. Okay. And I guess because she was moved around a little bit here and there, you know, she didn't really have a set home. She did, but she didn't, you know. She used mm -hmm. to have to, she lived with her mother, she lived with her father, she, you know, kind of had a, and then she went, she lived with her grandmother. I mean, mm -hmm. Donna was kind of young, you know, so she was kind of, well, yeah. did her thing too, you know? Yeah, I mean, because especially being that young, having a kid 16, 17 years old. Yeah, you didn't live. Like... But Doreen as a kid, let me think, she was actually, to watch her, oh my God, watch Doreen? Watch <laughs> like... oh no, you know? Because she, Good luck with that. when she was little, she was infant. Young, very mm -hmm. little. She used to pick her diaper. Mm -hmm. Okay, now she she'd pick it till it was off. And if you didn't catch her when she first woke up, you were in trouble. God <laughs> forbid she went to the bathroom. Kind of just wrapped duct tape around the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> we did the tape to her body. Back yeah. then you take, you know, you had the pins and yeah, and then we had the regular ones eventually. Mm -hmm. But oh my gosh, she was. We put the pin ones on her because she was, and then we were scared she was going to pinch herself, so we didn't. It was hard. She was hard. Very hard child with that. Okay. Yeah, you'd wake yeah. up and be like, no. If you knew you were watching her, you'd wake up before her. Yeah. <laughs> pieces diaper of diapers. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, she picked it to death. It was terrible. <laughs> and if she went, you know, defecated on herself, that was all over too and yeah. she even ate it was like oh, ah, no. she had her all over her face oh like, no she'd get up in a shower that's it tub time she always had that bath time yes at that point, Debbie came to join us. And as I spoke to Debbie and Carol together, I learned about one of Doreen's favorite pastimes. You heard Debbie briefly mention it to Jessica, and that was the scrapbooking. Here's Debbie. I just remember Doreen being like one of the prettiest little babies with the black hair and the blue eyes and just, just happy, just a happy kid. Um, I, I was very young myself, so, mm -hmm. but just helping out with her and trying to help my sister. She was a young mother. Mm -hmm. I was probably about nine, nine okay. years old when she was born, I think, maybe 10. So, like, did she have, uh, was she a social kid? Did she have, like, a big personality? Well, she, I don't think she was too social. She okay. kind of liked to be a little bit alone. She liked to do her okay. things she liked to do, which are, she did her picture books, and she'd cut out all pictures of actors and actresses, and she pasted them on. 
her she book. had her scrapbook. She loved her just scrapbook. She had, I mean, they weren't they were big, thick, mm-hmm. like albums. And was she kind of uh, more of an introvert or an extrovert? Do you think? Like, was she more of a shy an, kind of an a kid? introvert? Yeah, probably more of an introvert. I'd say, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what are some like memories that come to mind when you think about Doreen when you look back? Oh, babysitting, she was tough. <laughs> she kept you hopping. You would always watch. You did. She yeah. one you didn't just leave alone. <laughs> Very curious she, kid, yeah. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was, um, she, I mean, like I said, we were young, so we really didn't, I mean, they were married for the first three years, so we're, we were going into our teenage years, too, mm-hmm. so... But when we were about 17, 18, 17, 16, 17, we all lived together. Me and Donna, when they um, separated okay. her and Mark, um, we all lived together in a, in a house. So we we babysat a lot. And I just remember um, just just having to watch her a lot. She was she was always into something. Mm-hmm. Not a bad kid, but just, just curious. curious kid. Yeah. Very Busy. smart. Very Busy smart girl. girl. <laughs> So after meeting Doreen's mother, her little sister, and her two aunts, the people who knew her and loved her the most, my takeaway of Doreen was that she was a very sweet, very normal, introverted young girl. She loved making her scrapbooks. She loved her George Michael. She loved her jean jacket, which she wore all the time. So sometime after Mark and Donna separated, Mark married a woman named Sharon. Doreen went to live with them when they had an apartment in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mark and Sharon would have two children of their own together, born in 1985 and 1986. In June of 1988, Mark moved this new family to the new house on Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford. Wallingford is a little more than 30 miles away from Bridgeport, slightly more than half an hour drive. They moved in on June 5th, 1988. It would be 10 days later that Doreen would go missing. So now I'm going to give you the rundown of the series of events that happened that night, and I'll let you have your initial thoughts on it. The source for this information is a website that I mentioned at the beginning called The Charlie Project. The Charlie Project is a major missing persons database named after Charlie Ross, who on July 1st, 1874, at four years old, became the first kidnapping for ransom case to receive widespread media attention in the United States. Doreen Vincent was last seen at her father's house on June 15, 1988, on Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford, Connecticut. Her father, Mark Vincent, said they had an argument, and she then took some money and some extra clothes and left through the front door between 8 and 9 p.m. She never returned. Doreen had moved in with her father and her stepmother, Sharon, just 10 days before her disappearance. Her father, Mark, had said he last saw Doreen in the kitchen at 8 p.m. before he went into his workshop. His wife, Sharon, was at church at the time. So at 9 p.m., Mark goes into Doreen's bedroom and sees that she's not there. Then when Sharon gets home at 11.30, Mark tells her that Doreen is missing. Doreen was set to begin the eighth grade at Westwood's Christian Academy that fall. That's down in Hamden, Connecticut. Hamden is only about a 20-minute drive from Wallingford. And then it goes on to say she didn't like the rural atmosphere of Wallingford and she missed her friends in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where she had lived previously. 
Authorities initially believed Doreen had run away from home. She had run away once before and hitchhiked to her mother's house. Now, according to this entry, Mark Vincent was known for his violent temper, and his account of the day Doreen went missing had been inconsistent. He admitted he pushed her into a window, breaking it. His wife, Sharon, said she didn't believe that Doreen could have left through the front door, and the reason this site gives is because their front door had a deadbolt and had to be opened from the inside with a key. And I have to admit, the first few times that I read that part of the report, that didn't make sense to me. It was my understanding when a door has a deadbolt, you only need a key if you're on the outside. When you're on the inside, a deadbolt doesn't require a key. You just reach right up with your hand and unlock it. However, while it's not as common, it was clarified to me that some of the more old-fashioned deadbolts did require a key to unlock them on both sides of the door. But I do have to point out also, if you're a kid trying to take off, and for whatever reason you can't get the front door open, you're going to find another way out. A back door, a window, something. To me, it seems like if a child desperately wanted to run away, not being able to get passage through one particular door would not be enough to stop them. Mark did not initially tell Doreen's mother, Donna, that Doreen was missing. She didn't find out until June 18th, when she came over to her ex-husband's home. Donna had planned to pick Doreen up on June 17th, but when she called the house, no one answered. And the reason given here is because Mark had removed the phone from the wall. So when Donna came to the house, she asked him where Doreen was, and that was how she found out that she wasn't there. Mark didn't appear concerned, and he didn't want to report her missing, but it was her mother who insisted. Mark and his wife Sharon separated later that summer, and Mark moved out of the Wallingford house without leaving a forwarding address with the police. So the police were unable to locate him for some time. Sharon died in the 1990s at the age of 45. We're still looking into her cause of death. It goes on to say that investigators had suspected that a man by the name of Haddon Clark may have been involved in Doreen's disappearance. He was convicted of murdering a young woman and a six-year-old girl, and he claims to have killed nine other women and children along the eastern seaboard. And another side note, I looked him up on Wikipedia, and it says that he's currently incarcerated in Maryland, and he has a few nicknames, one being the Cross-Dressing Cannibal, and also the Rockville Rocket. So based on Clark's claims, police investigated him for involvement in several child disappearances and murders, Doreen among them. The interesting thing to note about Haddon Clark, he's originally from Meriden, Connecticut. Meriden shares a border with Wallingford. Is it so unusual to think that a 12-year-old girl walks out of a home on a summer evening as it's just about to become dark? And it's the 1980s, so there's no cell phones, just a girl walking by herself. She just got into a fight with her dad, so now she wants to hitch a ride to her mother's house. After she walks for a while, she manages to wave down a passing driver. We know a lot more about this kind of thing now than we did back then. 30, 40 years ago, this was not an uncommon thing for young people to do. It's only in the years since then that we've gained an awareness about the dangers of getting into a car with someone you don't know. Doreen is now classified as an endangered runaway. The last thing that it says on here is authorities do concede that the circumstances of her disappearance are still unclear. So there are a few things going on here. Doreen's father, Mark Vincent, was known for having a temper, and by his own admission, 
he shoved her into a window hard enough to break it. That, to me, is a good reason for a 12-year-old child to want to run away from that home. But why wait to report her missing? Why let three days go by until her mother shows up at the house? In this report and in other reports, it says that Doreen had hitchhiked to her mother's house before. So it's possible that Mark assumed that that's exactly what happened again. And remember, we have to go back to that 1980s mentality. It's just like with season one. It's a normal occurrence for a child to go out walking by themselves. But in those first three days, all time that could have been spent searching for Doreen, nobody knew where she allegedly took off to. There are some other items in this story that I want to know more about. First of all, Doreen's stepmother, Sharon. The report on the Charlie Project says that at the time that Doreen disappeared, Sharon was at church. I just looked up the date and it says that June 15th, 1988 was a Wednesday. Now that's not unusual for a church service to take place on a Wednesday night. In fact, I can remember when I was a kid, the church that I grew up in, which was a Protestant church, had a weekly Wednesday night service, in addition to the normal Sundays. It also says here though, that she got home at 11.30 that night. That is a long church service, especially if it was already going on before eight o'clock. And then she and Mark separate later that same summer. And then the deadbolt, which required a key to unlock it from the inside. Mark Vincent was a carpenter and by all accounts, a very talented one. So it's entirely likely he could have installed that lock himself. And I had this discussion with the rest of the production team. So is it possible if he did install that particular lock, Did he do so because Doreen had taken off once before to hitchhike to her mother's house? But as I mentioned, how would that even be enough to stop a kid that wants to get out when there are windows and other doors in the house? So diving into Doreen's case, I figured the best thing I could do was start with the most obvious resource, the Wallingford Police Department's records department. So I went ahead and cold called them to see if they could dig up an old police report or any archived information that could get us started on the right track. The woman I spoke to explained to me that unless something was a major case, which this wasn't, they typically only keep these records for 10 years. However, she did tell me that they would look into the archives and if there was anything they could share publicly with me, they would let me know either way. I hung up with the woman in records and I thought to myself, well, at least she was nice, but it felt like they probably weren't going to call me back. But much to my surprise, an hour and 20 minutes later, I got a call from someone else at the Wallingford Police Department. This time I spoke to a man and he gave me the contact info for a Lieutenant Cola Volpe. And he said that if any public information about the Doreen Vincent case was going to be made available, he would be the one to give it out. The day that I made this initial call to Wallingford was October 17th, 2018. I was told that Lieutenant Colavolpe would not be available until December. So I had a ways to go before I'd be able to speak with him. So about a month passed and I knew that something I would have to do is go down to Wallingford myself just to get a look at Whirlwind Hill Road with my own eyes. So I hopped in my car and I took a ride down there on November 15th. It was a calm, overcast afternoon, just a few hours before we here in Connecticut got our first big snowstorm of the season. And at this time, I didn't know what house it was that Doreen disappeared from. I wouldn't learn that until later. 
So I'm on my way to Wallingford right now. I'm on the highway. Um, this is something that I wasn't able to do in season one, obviously. I looked up where Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford is in relation to where I live. I was at home just a few minutes ago. And sure enough, uh, the time to drive there said 31 minutes. So that's not a long drive at all. In half a mile, use the left lane to take exit 67S for I-91 South toward New Haven, New York City. And this is highway that I'm very familiar with. I've driven this area countless times in my life. I'm not as familiar with Wallingford. Um, use the left lane to take exit okay. 67. I'm not as familiar with Wallingford because I had thought for some reason that Wallingford is a little more on the southwestern portion of Connecticut, but it's actually much more central than I thought it was. Um, I mean, I did have the distance right, though. It is like a half an hour drive. Um but yeah, I guess I'm I'm not that familiar with specifically Wallingford though. So this is going to be a little bit new to me. Turn left onto East Center Street. Okay, so in Wallingford, just got off the highway. Should be at Whirlwind Hill Road in about four minutes, according to my phone. Um, I don't know what house number Doreen's father lived at, but I just wanted to see the street because this is not um, an urban area by any means whatsoever. There's a lot of trees. Uh, there's a lot of suburban areas, but there's also just a lot of um, acreage of forests and open fields and things like that. So if that's how it is, continue on East Center um, Street for one mile. If that's how it is in 2018, can only imagine what it was like 30 years ago. So coming up in about a mile, and I'm looking around right now. There's a lot of farm area here too. There's a barn over here. There's a couple of silos actually. Uh, I see cows. There's a lot of cows. I see cows um, on the grass. They're grazing, they're kneeling. Some flock of geese going by. It's a very, very rural area out here. It's very, very rural. The houses are pretty far apart, and it's a very hilly area, too. That's something you should know about the Northeast, is that there's a lot of hills, and the roads are very bendy and windy. So I have to drive pretty slow so I can see where I'm going, first of all, and to concentrate going past what looks like a reservoir right now. Um, I'm driving through a road. There's a reservoir on my right side and it's just wall to wall. Turn right onto Whirlwind Hill Road. Trees. 
just wall-to-wall forest. Um, there's a line of trees on my right side where the reservoir is, and the whole left side is basically all forest. To further paint the picture of this area, I want you to kind of keep this image in the back of your mind. You've likely seen, or at the very least have heard of, a show called Twin Peaks. You know that scene in the pilot episode where Kyle MacLachlan is driving up the mountain into Twin Peaks? The moment of turning on to Whirlwind Hill Road felt reminiscent of that. The sky was white, it was November, so the ground was covered in leaves. Most of them had fallen off the trees, but a lot were still remaining and were very colorful. It was below freezing outside. In fact, my temperature gauge had read 28 degrees. And as I mentioned, we were just a few hours shy of some heavy snowfall. Take the next right onto Whirlwind Hill Road. Okay, so here's Whirlwind Hill Road. It basically, when you turn onto it, uh, immediately... On Whirlwind Hill Road for one mile. Immediately a bridge goes over the reservoir that I was just talking about. So I'm headed up Whirlwind Hill Road. It's a mountain. I should, well, not really a mountain, but a very steep hill. There's a farm on my right side and another silo. Big open yards. Um, the houses are pretty far apart. These are mostly farmhouses. Uh, there's another farm up ahead on the right. This is a very steep hill that I'm going up. Um, can only imagine what it's like to walk this way in the dark, or at least when it's getting dark. Yeah. And okay, so we've got more farmland and this time it's on both sides of the road, just acres and acres all of farmland. And up ahead, there's some, I can see on the horizon, some nice houses. There's like some mansions up there, up towards the top of the hill. Um, but it is primarily farmland. I'm seeing another silo come up on my left side now. Going up an even steeper hill now. And like I said, I don't know what house it was. Okay, so I'm right in the middle of Whirlwind Hill Road now. So this is a pretty long stretch of road, and I mean, you can probably hear my car right now uh, because this is an extremely steep hill. You get the picture. The road was steep. So now that I had been on the road myself, I tried to then get into the mind of a 12-year-old girl who just wanted out. She gets outside of that house and she starts walking. What then? It's very interesting. Um, so I'm headed down, I believe I'm on Branford Road right now. Um, if Doreen walked this way, she didn't have to go down the steep hill. It's an interesting dynamic because there's all this farmland. That's primarily what Whirlwind Hill Road is. Just all farms. And it's sort of surrounded by these extravagant houses, these really big, beautiful houses. Um, so I don't know what the area looked like 30 years ago. I don't know if maybe the mansions came much later, which is entirely possible. 
but you know it's very rural out here it's a very quiet area there's really not a lot of cars passing by me at all right now I think I've only seen about two actually since I turned on to Whirlwind Hill Road but yeah this is a very very quiet area so it just gets me thinking what was the plan once she allegedly left because let's go with that first of all let's say that she did up and leave one night as the report says whichever way she went it would be a really long way to walk um, to really get to any kind of civilization um, so maybe she had planned for someone to pick her up or there's also one of the reports that says that she had hitchhiked to her mother's house before so that's entirely possible that that's what happened that she tried to hitchhike to her mother's house again or to somebody else's house and it ended badly um, that's a very likely scenario too if somebody with bad intent picked Doreen up that night, what was their plan? It's a rural area with long stretches of forest. So where in that proximity could someone have taken her? If somebody had killed her, could they have dumped her out in one of those surrounding woods somewhere or near that reservoir? In my next episode, we're going to look at the early newspaper reports following Doreen's disappearance. These are articles from the Record Journal in Meriden, the paper that would have been the one to cover Doreen's case. The first one is from June 28, 1988, 13 days after she vanished. The last article that we know of is dated February 19, 1995. If you were a listener of season one of Faded Out, you may have noticed by now that we have evolved a bit in the past few months. I'm not just a one-woman show anymore. I have a great team working with me now, which has been essential in uncovering each detail in the Doreen Vincent case. You'll be hearing much more from the members of the team as we go forward this season. Until then, please follow Faded Out on social media. We can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There is also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. The closed group saw daily activity during season one as we covered the Johnny Gosh case, and we would like for this to also become a hub to discuss Doreen Vincent. We are also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, please reach out by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. This season, I will also be keeping a weekly blog as the story moves forward, which you can follow by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of season two. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me, Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre, produced by Joe Aguirre and Jason Panette of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>